Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome back from the weekend. Uh, this is Colin McEnroe. We call this the Monday Scramble. And recently we've been spending a lot of the time on the Scramble talking about the presidential race. Last week on the Scramble, we focused very heavily uh, on what had happened that very day. Our Scramble was on Tuesday uh, and the director of the FBI, uh, James Comey, had released his findings about Hillary Clinton and her emails. We spent a lot of time talking about that. This week, we're spending a lot of time talking about Donald Trump. If you picked up your New York Times today, assuming you get a physical copy, you may have seen that even Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I mean, Supreme Court justices don't give a lot of interviews. Uh, she gave an interview in which she quoted her uh, late husband saying this might be the time to move to New Zealand uh, if Donald Trump is elected. So we'll maybe today talk a little bit about why some people might feel that way. Uh, this has something to do with his foreign policy and something about who he is inside. And you'll hear both of those things on the show today. But we're going to start uh, with Franklin Foer. Uh, he is a fellow at New America and a contributing editor at Slate.com. He's going to talk to us about Donald Trump's relationships with Russia. Right now, Franklin Foer is writing a book about the dark side of Silicon Valley. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And so uh, let's um, let's start with Putin himself. Um, one of the th- one of your premises is that the Vladimir, Vladimir Putin has an international agenda. One of the things that fits that agenda is maybe the breakdown of some of these major alliances and alliance groups, that it's a, a better world for Putin uh, if the EU doesn't function that well, a better world for Putin if NATO doesn't function that well. Is that a fair characterization? That's a fair characterization indeed. And Putin hasn't just theorized about this. He's tried to operationalize it. And he's had an electoral strategy in Europe where he supported far-right candidates who were hostile to NATO and hostile to the European Union. And sometimes he supported them directly by giving them money. And sometimes he supported them in more covert sorts of ways by running propaganda campaigns on their behalf. And he's not terribly shy about it all. In fact, He's held various uh, confabs in Moscow where he's gathered a lot of the parties who he's aligned with to meet in one place and to, uh, to network and work together. I mean, so this uh, his his fascination with politicians from other countries has included Marine Le Pen, uh, Silvio Berlusconi. Um, obviously, for him to uh, try to get some money into the Donald Trump campaign would create some real problems vis-a-vis American election election laws, plus some real optics problems. Um, so, assuming that that doesn't happen, it's still worth talking a little bit about the relationship between Putin and Trump. But maybe we need to begin bet- with the relationship between Trump and Russia, which in many days many ways predates Putin. In, in your article, uh, Franklin Foer, you have a story like, which, like so many stories about Donald Trump, teeters on that knife's edge between farce and something considerably more oh, dire right. than farce. Right. So talk about the time that, quote, Gorbachev, unquote, visited Trump Tower. So in the late 80s, in the middle of perestroika, Gorbachev was trying to charm the American public. And when he was doing so, he went to New York, he went to Washington, 
And Trump, in anticipation of this visit, decided that he would make a little bit of noise on his own behalf and create some positive PR. So he called up the tabloids in New York and he told them, hey, Gorbachev is going to stop at Trump Tower and visit it because he wants to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. And this was a, a pure fabrication, but the tabloids liked quoting Donald Trump and Trump was doing the PR on his own. And so he managed to trick the press into treating the visit to Trump Tower as if it was an established fact. So the day of Gorbachev's visit to New York rolls around and Gorbachev is getting out of his car on, on Fifth Avenue and other places, shaking hands with the people. And a Gorbachev imposter who was put up to the task by uh, Channel 4 in the UK called up, they called up Trump's office and Trump comes rushing down from Trump Tower and he sits there and he's shaking hands with this impersonator and treating this impersonator as if he is Gorbachev himself. And so it, it is a comical story, but it, it's also a useful uh, parable because uh, to me it was the first of many instances in which Trump, in a very careless sort of way, starts sucking up to whoever's in power in Russia. Because in the late 1980s, he began this long fascination with building in what was then the Soviet Union and what would later become Russia, where he wanted to build a Trump Tower in Moscow and in Petersburg and in uh, on the Black Sea and in various other places. He was hailed as being uh, Moscow's first grand builder since Stalin. There was something about this that appealed to Trump's outsized ego. To me, the most alarming parts of your article have to do with what Donald Trump did when he was having a hard time getting American banks uh, to lend to him. We're going to also be talking about this uh, elsewhere on, on the show. Um, uh, one of the sources of money that he found was a, a source that came from Russia. And, and it's a little murky exactly who who really was that source. But he did, he did find a group of investors who could pump a lot of cash into him very quickly. Maybe you can... Uh, uh, talk to us about that. Right. So in the early part of the last decade, Trump started to really struggle for capital. And it, there were the big banks just didn't want to touch the guy for a variety of reasons. The first is that he uh, descended into bankruptcy several times. But the other is also that he has this litigious streak. And so he was just seen as being more trouble than he was actually worth. And so if he couldn't get money from the, the banks, he had to find alternative sources of capital. And so he went fishing. And, he, and, he, and among his fishing trips, he went to Muammar Gaddafi and tried to get him to give money. But the, one of the primary vehicles for capital was a partnership he formed with a small, little-known upstart group called Bayrock. Bayrock was based in Trump Tower, and it was run. Its chairman was a former Soviet official, and its main operator was a guy called Felix Sater, who was a gangster. He was associated with a mafia-run stock brokerage that uh, was later, he was later found guilty. He was, he was indicted for a, as part of a $40 million stock fraud scheme where they were inflating stock prices. He also was arrested and sent, to, sent off to the big house for um, a barroom fight where he took a shard of a margarita glass and used it to flash a guy's face. So Bayrock becomes this big partner for Trump, where they develop the Trump Soho, among other properties, but the properties all around the world that uh, Bayrock is working with Trump to, to develop. And they would take the Trump name, 
and the promise of these hotels and apartments being Trump managed, and they would put together packages for investors. And so the whole enterprise ended up devolving into a series of lawsuits. And from those lawsuits, we have a little bit of a better sense of where the money actually came from. And so money would kind of mysteriously appear in Bayrock's bank accounts whenever it needed it from Russia and Kazakhstan. Uh, one of their major partners was a, a group in Iceland, which was a, notorious for laundering money for the Russian elite. And so at the same time that Donald Trump becomes heavily dependent on capital from Russia to build these these grand, grand projects, which are just central to the Trump brand and central to his identity as a builder, he was relying on Russian capital. And he was, uh, at that same time, starting to escalate his praise for Vladimir Putin. That's sort of also, well, we can come back to that. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the, the back and forth praise between Trump and Putin. But he also, Trump also has some advisors who are also very, very close to, um, to the Kremlin. And, and chief among them, and you've written about this in more than one venue, chief among them is a guy named Paul Manafort, who grew up 15 miles from where I'm sitting. Uh, but it's not just Manafort. Maybe starting with Manafort, you can kind of give us a sense, to the extent that, that Donald Trump takes advice from anybody, and obviously he does take advice from Paul Manafort. Manafort is effectively, I think, running his campaign these days. He's taking a lot of advice from taking advice from a lot of people with some interesting ties to the Kremlin. So maybe starting with Manafort, give us kind of a sense of who in Trump's coterie uh, has what ties to Russia. So Manafort was my way into this piece. I'd written a profile of Paul Manafort, and uh, Manafort has a long career of being a lobbyist and consultant for dictators. He's very unabashed about that. But over the course of the last ten years, Manafort began to focus his work on clients who were tightly connected to the Kremlin. He worked with various really important Russian oligarchs who were very close to Putin. But uh, one of his primary accomplishments was that he worked on behalf of the Ukrainian presidential candidate, uh, Viktor Yanukovych. And Yanukovych was uh, associated with the eastern part of Ukraine and with various Russian oligarchs and, 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 and Russian-friendly oligarchs in that part of the country. And Putin was very keen on getting Yanukovych elected because if Yanukovych election came at a moment where Ukraine was teetering between deciding whether it would align itself with Europe or with Russia. And a Yanukovych victory would essentially guarantee Ukraine's alignment with Putin and with, with, with Russia. And Manafort came to Kiev and parked in Kiev and um, did a, a really stellar job uh, with with his advertising campaign and his political strategy. And he took Yanukovych, who was a goon and kind of a gray, anti-charismatic politician, and helped reinvent him and helped over the years develop him into a plausible and ultimately successful presidential candidate. So if we start with Manafort, we'd say Donald Trump's campaign manager's big accomplishment in recent years was bringing Ukraine into Putin's sphere of influence. So that's that's where we start at the top of the campaign. And then when we go down, we'll see that his major energy advisor worked for uh, for Gazprom, which is the Russian state-owned natural gas company. He put together deals for them and, and has advised them over the years and has been a major apologist on behalf of Putin in this country, uh, writing various articles that are 
are, are very uh, defend Russian, justify Russian uh, adventurism. And then there's another guy who is one of his main military advisors and whose name is currently being floated as a possible vice presidential candidate. And that's Michael Flynn, who is uh, the head of defense intelligence. And soon after he left the Obama administration, he developed a relationship with Russia Today, which is the uh, Putin's primary English language propaganda outlet. And in fact, he went to Moscow for Russia Today's 10th anniversary gala, and it was such a prized uh, piece of propaganda to have him there that he was seated uh, two seats away from, from, from Putin. And he's, he's, he's denounced America, uh, American policy in the Obama administration quite vociferously in Russian propaganda. Uh, Rick, Rick Burt, who wrote, Obama, who wrote uh, Trump's primary foreign policy addresses, kind of a venerable Washington figure who was uh, Ronald Reagan's ambassador to uh, West Germany in the 1980s. And he also is a major investor in, in, in Russia, and he's on the board of a fund that has a really significant stake in Gazprom, the Russian state oil company. And he's uh, on the board of a major bank in Russia, and he's, he's highly plugged into a Russian finance. And the point is that in Russia... The distinctions between the state and business are highly blurred. And so uh, you have people who work for Gazprom and the like. They're actually tied to the Russian, to the Russian government in uh, a direct sort of way. You know, if, you, if it was just one guy, you know, you, you could say it's an outlier and not terribly meaningful data point. But when you look at uh, the mass of them, it feels like, there's a, there's something still circumstantial, but but highly troubling about the pattern, and especially when we step back and we look at the broader array of connections that uh, Trump has developed to Putin in the Kremlin over time. You know, Franklin, for in your article, you also write about this kind of mutual admiration society uh, between Putin and Trump. Uh, Trump likes Putin. Putin says he likes Trump. Uh, Trump says, well, if he likes me so much, then I can't possibly not like him uh, because that's very much a major metric uh, for Donald Trump about evaluating and evaluating anybody is how much do they like Donald Trump. Um, you know, there might be some people sitting out there going, well, is any of this so bad? I mean, Putin's a major world leader. If you're president, uh, you better be able to deal with him. You better have some kind of working relationship with him and maybe even a working hypothesis about how you're going to deal with him in the future. Um, what is there about Putin and Putin's associates that makes him so off limits? Why would anybody need to be worried about all the things that Franklin Farr is writing about here? So, as I said before, there, Putin has a strategy, which is that the West right now has been highly unified in opposing Russia. When Russia invaded uh, eastern Ukraine and when it, it, it annexed Crimea, and there was, a, there was a hard line that the West collectively took opposition to Vladimir Putin. And Putin hates this, and Putin would much prefer that uh, the, the entire world be a giant negotiation between him and the major powers, because instead of striking hardline positions against him where they shut him down when he tries to grab a little here or grab a little there, he would rather the entire world be a negotiation where there's give and take. And so that means when he pushes things in Ukraine or, or, or 
uh, in other parts of the world, he will ultimately retrench, but he will also uh, grab little little pieces of the world here or there. And you know, Putin Putin has this strategy of trying to undermine liberal democracy in the West, and it's not it's not it's not a Soviet style type of threat. Yet it is still something that is ultimately antithetical to our values um, and also antithetical to our interests because, uh, you know, I would, I, I would argue that having a strong relationship with, uh, with Europe is, is, is crucial not, not only to us economically but also to us strategically just given the commonality of interest that we have in fighting, in fighting terrorism and in promoting liberal democracy around the world. And so uh, both Putin and Trump kind of want to want to dial back that historic relationship. I, I think maybe overarchingly, too, although I'm building this on pretty slender evidence, but I'm starting to wonder and, and maybe even get a very shady picture of what Trump real politique is, you know, and, and I think if you pair up all the stuff that you're saying right now and stuff that Trump has said, that's basically, uh, if not admiring of Putin, uh, suggestive that he, Trump, you know, can work with this guy. Uh, whenever he does that, I always think about Hart Bachner in Die Hard, where he says he can go <laughs> negotiate with Hans Gruber. Uh, <laughs> and we all know how that turned out. But, but you know, also, even the comments from last week, last Tuesday, uh, you heard we heard Trump saying, well, you know, Saddam Hussein, bad guy, but very good at controlling terrorism. That obviously isn't true. But I was sort of trying to parse that, trying to think, what what's the non-crazy version of that statement? And I think the non-crazy version of that statement is, you know, sometimes the dictator you have in place, if you can reduce his power a little bit, if you can negotiate with him, if you can kind of throw put a bell around his neck, you know, is better than the chaos that, that, that comes in after the dictator. I mean, that, that would be the yeah, non-crazy. So that would be, yeah, go that ahead. Would be- that's a non-crazy thing and, and, a, and a perfectly reasonable stance to take. The problem with Trump is that Trump thinks he, he does. Realpolitik is a cool doctrine. You're supposed to analyze the world from the perspective of this detached anal- analysis of your interests. And Donald Trump is, is, to say the least, not a detached sort of guy. I mean, he thinks about things in a very warm sort of way where you're a good guy or you're a bad guy. And so what would be troubling to me about his relationship to, to Putin is that, all right, uh, Barack Obama came into office promising a reset with Vladimir Putin. He promised that we would work with them on all sorts of issues. And you know, whether that was a, uh, a realistic thing or not, we can debate. But it was a very reasonable position to have taken um, to try to test that type of thing out. But the problem is, is that if you're negotiating with somebody who is, ultimately dishonest and ultimately wants to undermine you, uh, you can't look at them in a way in which you're, you're misunderstanding them or you're, you're treating him like he's, he's ultimately a good guy. We need to negotiate with, with Putin in, in all sorts of ways, but we, we need to do so in a way. I mean, the, the, the genuinely realistic position is to, uh, to, treat, to, to talk to the guy, but also to understand what, where his interests lie and his approach to the world. And what's, what's ultimately, I think, troubling to me about the Trump-Putin nexus isn't so much that I think that Russia is going to 
undermine the United States or that they're going to interfere in this election or that what troubles me is that if Vladimir Putin were trying to dream up his perfect candidate, he would look like Donald Trump um, because Donald Trump wants to advance Russia's interests in terms of weakening NATO and weakening the European Union. But more fundamentally, uh, Trump would, would weaken the fabric of the United States in a way that would make us less of an influence in the world. I mean, he, this guy says that he wouldn't pay, pay back our debt. He wants to renegotiate our debt, which would destroy the full faith and credit of the United States. He, he, he stoked racial polarization, which hurts the fabric of this country and, and, you know, and so on down the line. And, and I think probably a litany of things that are probably now pretty familiar to, to your listeners. And so that, that to me is ultimately why I find this whole simpatico thing between the two, uh, ultimately such a, such a nightmare. Franklin Four, uh, this has been an interesting conversation, and the article is fascinating. Uh, we're going to continue uh, exploring why uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg might move to New Zealand, for those of you who saw page one of the New York Times today, uh, in the next segment. But thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. So you just heard a little bit more about Donald Trump and his foreign policy vis-a-vis Russia. So that's the outer world. But we also decided to talk a little bit today about Donald Trump's interior world, somebody who's really tried to figure out what's going on inside Donald Trump. That person would be Mark Singer, staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of Funny Money, Character Studies, Encounters with the Curiously Obsessed, and most recently, Trump and Me. Mark Singer, welcome to the conversation several months working on that, and then cumulatively maybe a couple of weeks, uh, either fly on the wall mostly or, or, you know, talking to him. But uh, it was an immersion in Trump world for sure. <laughs> so the British have an expression, uh, who is he when he's at home, right? That's their way of asking sort of who, who somebody really is. But this, that in a way was one of your questions in approaching this, uh, this piece was not just who is Donald Trump when he's at home, but who is Donald Trump when he's not Donald Trump in capitals and italics? Who is Donald Trump when the TV lights are off and nobody's writing down what he says? Who is Donald Trump when he's not really being this incredible Donald Trump character? Is there a person uh, who exists uh, in, in more of this kind of off-switch position. Um, that's one of the things you wanted to know. Did you ever get a satisfactory answer? I didn't find him. <laughs> uh, I, I really felt that he was a persona, that that was a very deliberate decision that he made relatively early in his career when he chose to brand himself. No one had branded real estate before this. So he succeeded in his... his uh, life today is very wholly dependent on having branded himself and, and licensing his name, things like that. But the actual human being, I, I did not encounter. But so, but that raises a question. I mean, you do ask, you know, does he have an inner life? I mean, 
we assume that pretty much everybody has an inner life. I mean, maybe people who are sociopaths or psychopaths have slightly different inner lives, but they certainly don't not have lives, don't have existences, which you know, uh, which are which are private to them. I mean, everybody has some kind of private inner world where they have conversations with themselves that are distinct from their public utterances. I mean, are, are you actually questioning whether or not such a thing exists for, for Donald Trump, some kind of private consciousness? Well, let me qualify this. <laughs> I'm not God. Yes. So, um, but I did once ask him, we were driving in uh, Westchester County, New York, and I was trying to get at this very question. And I said, okay, what time do you wake up? He wakes up very early. He sleeps relatively little. What time are you at your desk? So he wakes up at you know, 5, 5.30. He's at his desk at 7.15. Okay, what do you do? So I shower, I shave, I, I read the papers. What, what do you read? So he tells me the magazines, newspapers he reads. I said, all right, you're, you're in the bathroom shaving, and you're looking in the mirror. What do you see? And he doesn't respond. And I said, well, are, are, are you looking at yourself and uh, thinking, wow, I'm Donald Trump. He still doesn't get it. There's, he doesn't know what to do with this question. And finally, I said, uh, I guess I'll let it, put it this way. Do you regard yourself as ideal company? And he said, um, I'll tell you this story. We'll see if it lasts. Uh, <laughs> I, know, I, I actually know how this story goes. Uh, we might be able to well, learn it. We'll see. <laughs> well, anyway, I, I, he says, you really want to know what I consider ideal company? And I said, yes. And he said, a total piece of ass. So that really led to my conclusion that what it really led to was the next to last line of that profile, which was that he had aspired to and achieve the ultimate luxury and existence unmolested by the rumbling of a soul. Yeah, that was the best I could do. <laughs> well, you know, but reading that passage, I mean, there's sort of, at minimum, two ways to interpret that passage. One of them is that, yeah, I mean, he, he often seems to be kind of uh, impervious to any kind of syntactical subtlety when anybody else is talking, right? I mean, he's barely listening, and so maybe he doesn't understand what you're asking him. Now, the other possibility is that he's really deflecting your question, that he understands exactly what you're asking him, which is which is that question. When, when all of the attention is away and you are alone with yourself, who is that self? What is that self? And then he deflects it. He deflects it with a very crude sexual observation about himself. Um, and I think I'm inclined to believe the sec- they're both quite possible. But I think I'm inclined to believe the second thing. He really doesn't want to answer that question. I mean, maybe all of us would have a little bit of trouble answering that question. But but he did you get the feeling that he just didn't really want to answer the real question you were asking? I'm happy to go with your interpretation. (laughs) There is this matter of uh, there was one of his biographers, Michael D'Antonio, who published a book last year called Never Enough. And. Trump let something slip, basically, before he ultimately ended up uh, freezing out D'Antonio. But he he said to him, I don't like to analyze myself because I might not like what I see. Now, that indicates either a very high level of self-awareness or a complete lack thereof, or maybe both. So we're back to this dichotomy. But I I do think that you're right. He doesn't want to do it. But still, you know that at night you put your head on the pillow, you're getting ready to go to sleep and stuff's going on Mm -hmm. in your brain. And I I don't question that that's true with him. 
but I can't fathom what that might be. No, I think as writers, both of us have these kind of minute narratives that are almost almost impossible to turn off. It would be great to be Donald Trump even for a few hours, you know, to shut off that whinnying inner voice that's constantly asking us questions about ourselves. But, you know, I mean, it raises so many other questions about who he is. And I think we try to recognize him in terms of American archetypes. So I see in him a little bit of Saul Bellows. Henderson, you know, that who has that I want, I want, I want drumbeat that's yes. in his head that can never really be shut off. You know, I mean, there was a, a piece in the New York Times, I think, about uh, people who knew him. I think maybe like people who were sort of friends of his. And one guy said, yeah, you know, in the 80s and 90s, uh, he tried to do it with sex and deals. Now it's this political thing. But what he was trying to do was to scratch that itch that, that ultimately can't be permanently scratched. And I guess we sort of wonder whether that itch is, is it the result of some sort of Citizen Kane-like psychic wound, or is it just an itch he was born with that he was, you know, it doesn't really have a name. It's not the result of his childhood sled having been taken away or the, you know, the collapse of some familial bond. It's just, he just can't be satisfied. Well, I believe in nature and nurture. Mm -hmm. And so I assume that there was something that went on. His father was a very driven guy and a a hard guy, a tough guy. And, And he both you know, told his son, you're a king. That, that must have had some sort of effect. But he also, at about uh, you know, 13 or 14 years old, you know, yanked him out of his uh, comfortable existence in Jamaica State's Queens and sent him to New York Military Academy. And he did relatively well there. But even before he got there, he, he was bully. He, he, was, he was proud of... of uh, he was arrogant as a kid. There, this is in all the biographies. So what truly made him do that and didn't make another of his siblings, let's say, become Donald Trump, I can't say. But I think that there is, uh, you say, scratch that itch. A lot of times I think of it as scratch that id. Mm-hmm. He really doesn't seem to have a superego, although he obeyed his father. So that that becomes a little complicated. I don't want to over analyze him. I'm not a doctor. I, in addition to not being God, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> so I, I I only have what I observed up close and what I observe now, and he is himself only more so at the moment. So as you watch him campaign, I mean, first of all, I was struck uh, reading Trump at Me with its uh, harking back to that that profile from the mid-1990s, uh, how many of the tropes he engages in now, that he indulges in now, were just absolutely right there back then. It's not as though he suddenly picked up this thing of, of evaluating almost anybody, in, uh, first of all, by their appearance and how it measures up to somebody else's appearance and who's less attractive and who's more attractive. And it just seems like that that's one of his, his basic yardsticks. But I think the other thing is that that whole way of relating to the world in terms of the kind of feedback that he gets. So uh, Gail Collins, who, who like you, by the way, has um, a, a treasured keepsake that of some like horrible, nasty thing that Donald Trump mailed to her based on something that, he'd, he, that she'd written about him a long time ago. But I, in one of her columns, she said something to the effect that, you know, if Trump discovered that his our audiences at rallies were really interested in gardening, 70 percent of his campaign would be about mulch. You know, that that in <laughs> fact, it's it, it's like really the thing that gets applause is the thing that becomes more and more true and more and more important as opposed to any other 
ordering of information. And that seems to be the guy you met, you know, 20 year, twenty odd years ago. When I was with him, he wasn't running for public office. He was not a listener that I observed. He really had no curiosity about me, which is fine. I, I want to be invisible as a reporter. But I also have been puzzled by this. He has taken a, a genuine sentiment held very strongly by a certain percentage of the populace about immigration. And he's made that his theme. There are other themes, but that, that was his principal theme. And that was certainly as, at his kickoff of his campaign was this uh, attack that he launched against Mexicans. Who the hell saw that coming? Mm. But he knew that that was going to work. And it did. And the thing that has always evoked the most powerful reaction among the crowd is when he says, we're going to build a wall. And the crowd goes kind of crazy. When he says it, he sort of let the cat out of the bag when he was talking to the New York Times editorial board a few months ago where he said that. He said, I notice that people are, seem a little bored or restless or whatever. I just say, we're, we'll build the wall. And they go crazy. So that, sent, that indicates an awareness of others, obviously. He is a salesperson. He's nothing if not a salesman. He's, he's really quite a, a genius at selling. Uh, you might not like the product, but a lot of people do. And uh, so I think that we're, we're talking about somebody who both does and doesn't get his cues from the people around him. If he, if he, if he was a good listener, he would not be shooting himself in the foot daily. Well, I want to come back, Mark, to this whole – we're talking to Mark Singer, by the way, writer for The New Yorker. His new book is called Trump and Me. I want to come back to what you were saying before about um, id and ego and superego because in addition to not being God or a doctor, you're also not a psychotherapist. However, I I trust your insights in any of those capacities. And one of the things that struck me reading reading your book and that I've been trying to find a way of thinking about – is the way in which he doesn't seem to, in fact, have a superego. And even if we could sort of equate the superego, which is not, this is not exactly Freudian, but with sort of basically the, the notions of civil governance that allow you to get through a day without have or civil self-governance that allow you to right. get through a day. So, like, you know, it's like all of these rules need to be taught afresh to him every time. You don't talk about a female television uh, news anchor in terms of her menstrual cycles or what, what she might be bleeding out of. You don't make fun of the walk of a journalist who turns out to actually have uh, some kind of physical uh, disorder that's, that's causing him to walk in a different way. You know, we could go on and on, but, but that basic notion anyway, that there's just certain things we don't do, and, and occasionally these things really do redound to his discredit, at which point he kind of almost has to embrace these kind of basic rules of self-governance like they're new ideas. Well, he doubles down first. <laughs> when he gets really harsh criticism for one of those things, he doesn't back off originally. He, you know, he, he learned that from Roy Cohn. Never, 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 never apologize. Never back off. Never concede error, really. is. I think we're talking about another thing without saying so directly, and that is he's willing to inflict cruelty. That says a lot about him. And, it, and it's, some of these traits seem to me at times almost sociopathic. He's not a mentally healthy person. Mm. I don't see how anyone could conclude based on what we all see daily that that he is because he's 
he's kind of all over the place. He, he, lately, you know, the, the sort of chatter on social media uh, among you know, journalists particularly is, is this guy just coming unglued? Mm. I, I just, I think that he needs control, but he doesn't know at this point how to control the world around him and also himself. He's very confused. We're talking to Mark Singer from The New Yorker about his 1996 interview with Donald Trump and the aftermath thereof. We'll be back after this break. It's a long back. I want to thank our first guest, Franklin Foer, fellow at New America, contributing editor at Slate.com. Betsy Kaplan produced the show today. Greg Hill is tweeting for us at WNPR. Colin, please tweet right back at him, and he'll tweet right back at you. Jonathan McPants holding down the fort as usual. The part of Bill Curry was played by Gerard Depardieu. Our interns are Esther Shitu and Olivia Piper. Tomorrow on the show, we'll be talking about septic shock. Uh, I'll let you decide whether or not there's a connection between that and the conversation we're having right now with Mark Singer, staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of Funny Money, Character Studies, and most recently, Trump and Me. We should say uh, Mark and I are having this conversation on Friday. By the time this airs on Monday, Donald Trump may have done any number of things uh, that either add to or convolute the conversation that we're having. In fact, I can guarantee you that will happen. But even as we were going on the air, I told Mark, I just looked and Howard Kurtz had a piece saying that uh, Trump's advisors were uh, and now fallen into the habit of not telling him about certain television interview requests because they don't feel as though they can get him to take instruction about this, that if they say, please, whatever you do, don't tell Anderson Cooper that Saddam Hussein was really good at controlling terrorism, that it's just no guarantee at all that he won't say that. And that, once again, speaks to your your sense that he's not behaving like a person who's able to make rational decisions about how he lives and acts. Absolutely correct. I don't, I don't have any I wouldn't quibble with any of that. <laughs> All right. You, you, you say that he uh, seems as though he may not be um, not acting like a man anyway who's mentally healthy. There's also the question of whether he's financially healthy. I was listening to a podcast recently where Adam Davidson, who I regard as extremely smart about money, uh, was ta- and lots of other things as well, uh, was saying you know, that he – at that point, Trump had this sort of cash-on-hand problem with his campaign you know, where, in fact, they had maybe like a million dollars, a million four maybe cash-on-hand – you know, which is sort of not enough to be running a presidential campaign. This was just within the or, last or a congressional race. or anything. And and he said, look, if he were really wealthy, he said there are people like Paul Allen who can write a check like today for a hundred million dollars. You know, and then there are people who can write a check for ten million dollars. Or you know, and, and if somebody is a billionaire, they can probably write a check for ten million dollars. If you can't, if you can't write your own campaign a large check at a moment where it's become kind of a news story that your campaign doesn't have very much money. That's a sign that you don't have very much money. And uh, there's quite a bit of analysis that you do, particularly about Trump during the time that you were looking at him, but Trump in general, that this this notion of how rich he is, it's, it's a very difficult thing to pin down. And a lot of it has to do, as you point out, with debt. And I'll let you take over the story from here. 
Well, he, he's the person who has said that uh, leverage is, is a wonderful thing. He loves leverage. Well, when you leverage, you and I leverage when we borrow money to buy a house. Um, we borrow to buy something that we don't really want to Either we, we might have the money to buy it, but we don't want to use it for that. We hope that the house will appreciate in value if we ever sell it. It's a simple business precept. You you want to build something that's going to cost $10 million. You really want to put down as little as possible. So you put down a half a million or a million, and you borrow as much as a bank will lend you if they deem you creditworthy. Trump stiffed his banks in the early 90s for about $800 million and then pretended that nothing had happened. And the the one thing that certainly happened then is that he became uncreditworthy in the eyes of any rational lender. So he did recover by leveraging his name is what he was really doing. He was using that to make money without investing anything other than his name. That was That was his true brilliance as a business person. But it was necessary, of course, because he wasn't a very good business person in a lot of respects. And he... He had bankers that he was too big to fail. His bankers had no choice but to, to, to keep him alive. They took away certain assets, but they, they limited his, his monthly spending and allowance. It happened to have been $450,000, which is, I recall, more than my allowance when I was in high school. So he was able to resume the show. And and then actually, literally, there was a show, The Celebrity, I mean, The Apprentice. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I never saw it. But it was all a fiction, and just as he—he he is a fiction. There was a there was a writer, Timothy O'Brien, a former New York Times reporter, who wrote a book a few years ago, Trump Nation, and in that he did an analysis. He was a really savvy guy. He had he had been an assistant, a protege of Wayne Barrett, probably one of the great greatest political reporters in New York, who was very familiar with Trump. Wrote a book about Trump, and Timothy O'Brien decided that Trump was worth liquid somewhere between 125 and 250 million dollars. What did Trump do? He sued him for 5 billion dollars for defamation. And that went to trial. It dragged out. It didn't go to trial. It was it was litigated. It was settled after 4 years and the reason it was settled is because O'Brien's lawyer did an excellent job and and Trump in a deposition said that his net worth is something that fluctuates from day to day in part based on his own feelings. Well, <laughs> that's one way to be a billionaire, I suppose. Right. And you, we get back to these kind of fundamental Descartes-like questions about what, ex- what constitutes existence for this man. And we, you do get the feeling that, you know, if someone is applauding me, therefore I am. You know, there are certain things that, that make him feel as though he exists and that give him also a rush, as you point out in the book. You know, he doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He claims never to have had a cup of coffee. Uh, he is clearly something of an adrenaline junkie. And there's, there's one point in that moment that you were just describing where he winds up with a $450,000 a month allowance. That's it's all a result of a reorganization, which basically does eliminate this vast amount of debt that he has. And, and one gets the feeling there's some answer that he gives to a question where you feel as though he's not comfortable with that. Like if, if, you, if you, I'm leveraged, therefore I am, that he really kind of needs to get back into that role anyway of just moving a lot of money around in a way that most of us would be incapable of. Well, imagine Donald Trump after these banks took a bath, imagine him not being able to resurrect himself as something. That's unimaginable. I mean, the, the, guy, the, the guy deserves credit for having created value 
in his own name. But I don't know, I'm not really sure what that tells us about who he is, other than that he has an enormous ego. Everybody running for president has an ego. And he he doesn't play by the rules that you and I play by, uh, because he shows no shame about the fact that people didn't get paid. These stories have come out during the campaign USA Today, all these contractors that he that he stepped, he put people out of business who were contractors building, you know, working on hotel projects and casino projects in Atlantic City. So I, th- I think I think the absence of shame, and again, we're talking about what makes him tick, what is his mental health, psychologically, what is his makeup. I've never encountered anyone like him. Well, um, we're talking to Mark Singer, uh, the great writer for The New Yorker. His uh, book is Trump and Me. Uh, with a foreword by David Remnick. Uh, let me just ask you, uh, you're, you're not God and you're not a doctor, nor are you, you know, Cassandra or Gene Dixon or something, but I'm going to ask you to make some predictions anyway. Imagine that Trump somehow or other ones that wins the presidential race. You and I were alluding to this before we started ruling on this, but I mean, some people have even wondered, because so much of this does seem, as you say in your book, like performance art, as opposed to somebody with a particular plan for governance. You know, some people have speculated, well, he might, he might I'd sort of announce at some point that he really didn't intend to be president. I mean, what what do you picture, knowing what you know about this man, what do you picture him doing, you know, uh, on the day of his purported putative inauguration as president? Would he actually serve? You're asking a question. I'm sorry, but I can't answer it okay. because I can't imagine it. I, I, and, and I'm not a, I'm not a novelist. That would be that would make it easier. But I, I'm so convinced that he overplayed it and that he didn't want to be the Republican nominee, that this was all about building the brand. And everything that we're seeing that seems crazy, that seems self-subversive, is the result of that. He did not want to be president. So that would say logically, well, if, if the American electorate goes nuts or, you know, Hillary Clinton's leaky canoe gets even leakier, uh, that, that we end up with Donald Trump um, elected. The only thing I do know is that his Paul Manafort, you know, who was brought in to sort of clean things up, make the make the the organization of the campaign at least have some semblance of, of, of adult management, said that Donald Trump does not want to do certain jobs. He wants a vice president who uh, will basically be a, a chief executive officer, chief operating officer. He wants to be the chairman of the board. So that's a scenario. And the talk lately is that it, it seems increasingly Newt Gingrich might be his running mate. That would fit that scenario as well. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Uh, I will say that one of the things that Mark points out in his book is that uh, journalists, when we when we think about these things, we often think about how good it's going to be for our profession, how much fun it's going to be to write about this. And then ideally, if we have any conscience at all, we then think and then how bad it would be in other ways that have nothing to do with making us happy. So uh, on that conflicted thought, I think we're going to have to stop. <laughs> uh, but Mark Singer, it's been great to talk to you. And the book Trump and Me uh, is a available for purchase. Well, it's been great for me too. Thank you, Colin. Okay. Bye-bye.
I've got a few minutes left here at the end. Thanks to both of our great guests and thanks to Betsy Kaplan for pulling this show together. Uh, I want to quickly mention that uh, if you have reactions to this show that you'd like to share, you can email me at Colin, C-O-L-I-N at WNPR.org. We also have a Colin McEnroe Facebook page, which we would really like you to uh, to like. It's the Colin, Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook. So go discover that, like it. All of our producers are communicating with you uh, on that page. And then everything that we do goes up up on WNPR.org. You can always get the audio of a show that you've missed or share it with friends uh, on Facebook or Twitter. And so that's WNPR.org. If you look for the there's sort of a show menu, you can click on that and drop down, drop it down. You get the Colin McEnroe show. Everything we do uh, goes up there. Nothing is ever lost. We preserve everything. Let me t- quickly also tell you about some things that we have coming up here. Tomorrow we do have a show on septic shock. Septic shock or sepsis uh, actually puts more Americans in the hospital than heart disease uh, or at least heart attacks uh, or end stroke put together. And yet we discovered it's actually a word that half of Americans don't really know the meaning of. It actually is the cause of death for Muhammad Ali. That wasn't Parkinson's disease. It was sepsis. So we feel like there's a story to be told there. Uh, we're also trying to respond in different ways, obviously, to some of the heartache of last week. Uh, we're going to respond culturally uh, on Wednesday with a show about Westerns. And, and that notion also that so much of our attitudes about guns and and the way guns are sort of the primary uh, agent for effective action in America goes back in some ways, at least to our love of Westerns, to the idea that you settle your problems uh, by shooting, by guns. And then on Thursday, we're doing a show about circumcisions. So... uh, (laughs) which has nothing to do with anything else, except that there's a lot of controversy about whether circumcision is a great thing or not. So um, please tune in for all of those. We'll have the news from New Haven uh, on Friday. Don't forget about our, our Twitter account, too, which is WNPR Colin. Please follow us there on Twitter. And during the show, feel free to tweet back and forth with Greg Hill, our tweet master. So that's about it. Uh, that rounds it up. Uh, thanks for listening today. And join us tomorrow for a show about sepsis.